Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Boss Podcast, coming to you every week with another great talk from over a decade of Boss Gomps. I am Kirk Bailey and this week we look at why a SaaS pricing consultancy gives away free software with Patrick Campbell. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Your customers matter, monetization matters. It's something you have to focus on in your business mainly because it's getting harder and you don't want to make it harder on yourself. In this talk, Patrick considers why SaaS companies obsessed by user acquisition and user acquisition cost are focusing on the wrong metrics, missing the far more important growth drivers for a SaaS business, monetization and retention. A data-rich talk that shows the importance of developing your product in collaboration with your current users to understand the needs of the people that are paying for your product. Happy listening. Um, and just a little housekeeping at first, uh, we're going to go through a lot of data and we're going to go through a lot of different pieces of methodology. Um, so we find it useful to kind of share the slides. Um, head over to basically priceintelligent.com slash BOS. Um, and if you have any other you know, needs or wants or anything related to the talk, you can just send me an email directly. Um, but today, um, what I really want to kind of unpack for everyone here today um, is really this concept of building product is getting harder. Um, it's not getting easier, and it's going to continue to get harder and harder um, as we continue to go into the future. And we're going to unpack this statement, but to put it across a little more colloquially, um, really the age of kind of throwing shit up against the wall and seeing what sticks um, is over. And I don't necessarily mean that it's harder and harder to push code. I don't mean that it's harder and harder to actually you know, make pixels do what we want them to do. Um, I'm referring more to the fact that it's going to be harder and harder to build an actual software business. Um, but before we unpack and kind of support that thesis, um, you know, who the hell am I, right? Um, bold claims, definitely not clean shaven and looking professional. Um, you know, who, who am I to make such a bold statement here? Well, um, we uh, founded Price Intelligently actually about four years ago, and if you give me a, a moment of a little bit of a self-indulgent moment here, um, we actually started as a bootstrap company right around the four years ago, the Business of Software conference that was at the Intercontinental. Um, and I remember actually, um, just a nice little anecdote here, I emailed Mark, um, we were completely broke, I cashed in my 401k for my personal runway, and I'm not that old, so it wasn't that much money. Um, it was one of those things where I was like, Mark, I really want to come to this conference. We have no money. Can you give me a break? Um, and I remember that through a couple of different um, you know, emails back and forth, all of a sudden, Darmesh was like, hey, I'll sponsor this ticket. Great. Um, and so it was one of those things where it's, it's actually really exciting that um, we started about four years ago around business of software. Um, and the business of software conference has been you know, something that's very, very important to our company. And then now, four years later, we have two suites of software. We're 25 people, um, still bootstrapped and still cranking along. Um, but what's cool is that the one side of the software that we have here is this price intelligently suite of pricing software. And so we'll get into a little bit more about what we actually do there later in the deck. But essentially, we help companies with their pricing. Um, so you saw Darmesh talk about it. You saw a couple of the other speakers talk about it. Um, we found this problem, and my background's in econometrics and math, at other software companies where we were so, so smart about building good product, and we were so smart about building good marketing campaigns. But when all of a sudden it came to pricing, we were like, eh. 
you know, here's a couple of MBAs, give them some time in a room, and they're going to come up with some sort of nice pricing model. And we thought that there was a better way. Um, the other suite of software we have is called ProfitWell, and it's free subscription financial metrics. So you can plug in Zora, Braintree, Stripe, whatever you're using, um, and you basically get access to your churn, your MRR, um, all that kind of fun stuff. So we're helping people as big as Atlassian and Autodesk all the way down to early stage companies, and I'm not really giving you this context because it's you know, a nice little update at Business of Software, but I'm giving you this context because at this point through both pieces of software, we've essentially seen inside more software companies than anyone else out there on the planet. Um, our current data set sits at, at our estimate between 15 and 17% of the entire software market. Um, and as we continue to unpack this thesis a little bit, it's all gonna be based on data that we have seen and we have been very, very blessed and fortunate to see um, earlier on as we continue to kind of see the development of the software industry. So to start to kind of unpack this, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through a lot of this data we're gonna start at a very high level macro, then we're gonna dig into what we're seeing um, even from a founder level. Um, and then we're going to make everyone feel better after we make everyone feel not so great um, by giving you some tools and some tactics that you can use to kind of overcome some of the things that we're seeing. Um, but to start things off, what we're noticing in the market is that it's becoming extremely saturated. Um, it used to be about 10 years ago, you could have a fairly novel idea like marketing analytics or um, you know, something like Dropbox. And all of a sudden, you didn't have a ton of competitors. There wasn't a lot of really good software out there, and so you could really, really differentiate yourself. Um, we're seeing that those days no longer exist. Um, first off, our world is becoming extremely competitive, and it's making switching costs even easier. What we did is we went out to some founders who had been around for about five years, and we said, hey, what's going on with your competitors and in your different trajectory, like what was your competitor subset? What did it look like? And what we found is, is that over time, competitors were definitely growing. Now what's interesting about this is of course, if they're being successful they're around for five years, maybe it's an indication that like, oh, they attracted more competitors. Well in reality what's happening is even with competitors, subsets of companies that are less than a year old, we're finding that because software is easier and easier to build, you know, with different, not only frameworks, but also all kinds of different software that's out there for making software, all of a sudden it's really, really easy to enter the market, and most companies that maybe 10 years ago might have had one really archaic competitor that was, you know, a perpetual license type product, now all of a sudden have six or more different SaaS competitors that are out there. And what's interesting is if you kind of dig deeper, not necessarily on kind of a competitor subset, but we actually look at the value, the individual value of features, we're seeing that it's trending towards zero. So we've all heard or potentially have heard this whole concept of all software is going to zero, but we've actually seen the data that proves that or at least supports that. So we're gonna pause a second on this slide because it's a little confusing to walk through, um, but we have an algorithm, our pricing software, we basically go out to end users, we ask them a few questions, and then we can take that data and basically calculate an elasticity curve. Basically, an elasticity curve is what price equals what type of volume that you're going to get. If you increase your price 2x, we can estimate how much volume you're going to lose in terms of sales or churn or a number of different factors. But what's really fascinating is when we normalize that data, meaning we are able to compare something like Crazy Egg's core features to Dropbox's core features, or even take some of the different add-on features that a lot of us have been adding to basically get upgrades, such as integrations, analytics, single sign-on, we're noticing that no matter how you slice it, things are going down and to the right. 
And anecdotally, four years ago, you could charge someone 400 bucks a month for a Salesforce integration. It wasn't that hard. But now it's kind of something that's expected. It's like, well, everyone else has a Salesforce integration and it's free. Why are you going to give me that you know, and charge me for it? But what's kind of interesting is when you dig further into this data from the CAC side of the house, we're actually noticing that relative CAC is also increasing over time. So we look at similar customer subset here, both on a B2B and a B2C subset. All of a sudden, we're seeing CAC is increasing. Now, this should be intuitive, right? Everyone and their mother has an ebook. Everyone's got some sort of Facebook ads. CPCs are increasing over time. This shouldn't be too surprising. But the problem is, is that when you look at competitors are increasing, CAC is increasing, willingness to pay is going down overall, it's one of those things where it's becoming harder and harder to succeed. Now, if we go a little bit further, we can state kind of a platitude that we all know, right? That good customer-driven product is becoming increasingly important. But the problem that we're seeing in the market is that us, you know, this ecosystem, and we're not speaking from some high horse here, we also have problems. We're really, really ill-equipped for this transition. So when we looked at founders, and we talked to a lot of founders and executives in SaaS, and we asked them, like, who are your buyer personas? Most of us weren't really able to give a good answer. And I might kind of shoot myself in the foot here. I'm going to do a little bit of an experiment here. This is a very more advanced group. Um, but how many of you in your businesses have buyer personas? Raise your hand if you have some context of buyer personas. And, um, you know, HubSpot's been writing about these for years, right? Like Startup Steve, cute little names. So for those of you who have buyer personas, keep your hands raised for me for a second. How many of them are in a central document? Anyone on the team can access them? Okay, we lost a few. How many of you have those buyer personas broken down by your different usage or unit economics? So Startup Steve, you know that they're worth this much. This is their CAC, Midterprise Mary, so on and so forth. Lost a few more. How many of you have relative value um, broken down, that you collected data about what features are most important, what features are least important from the customer's perspective? Do we have anyone? We have one? OK. Oh, a couple more over here. Price elasticity data for each of your buyers. All right, all right, all right. There we go. That's the one that kills everything. But um, we had a couple more questions. But what's interesting is what we notice in the market is that people don't have quantified buyer personas. And when I talk about quantified buyer personas, it's not a cute avatar with a cute little name. It means that you still have that cute avatar and the cute little name, but you also have a lot of data that you've collected on what are the most valued features, what are the least valued features, what's the willingness to pay for that particular person. And to give you a little bit of solace, um, you're not alone in, in not, not having buyer personas. Um, so this is about 1,600 software companies out there. Most folks are in your camp. You've thought about them. You're in business. You know a little bit about your buyer. It's not like you're, you're completely starting from scratch. But very few of us have some sort of central document, and even fewer of us have this quantified buyer personas. And you might be thinking to yourself, maybe that's OK. But here's where things get a little bit scarier for the ecosystem in general. When we go out and ask people, how many people are you talking to on a monthly basis in a customer development capacity. What was fascinating, it's not a whole lot. So the majority of folks are talking to less than 10 target customers per month. And this should be like 
pretty scary because just to give you context, there are Fortune 2000 software companies in that data set, just not talking to enough customers. And what's interesting is then when we present some of this data to some folks, they say, well, you know, we don't really have official numbers on how we talk to customers, but we send a lot of really good customer development surveys. Nope. Most people aren't sending surveys. And what's really funny is most people then say, well, surveys suck. And like surveys do suck because we're really bad at sending them. Um, we're going to talk about surveys in a little bit. But the other feedback I get here is like, we don't talk to customers. We don't really you know, go out and like send surveys. But you know what we do? We test the shit out of things. We A-B test everything. We do everything really well. Nope. And what's really scary about this is this includes marketing tests. Like, just to give you some context. So we're not talking to customers. We're not surveying customers. We're not doing tests. And all of a sudden, we wonder why our businesses aren't succeeding. And the market's getting harder. And what's scarier is that when we look more into kind of what we focus on as companies, and this is what we wanted to explore more, well, if we're not doing kind of the core product things that all of these luminaries and software have told us are so important, what are we doing? Acquisition. That's what we're focusing on. So what's fascinating about this is that we are stalker level obsessed with acquisition as an ecosystem. And the first data point that we looked at to kind of support this was we looked at blog posts. So we looked at about 26,000 different blog posts. And the reason we did this is because we write about what we want to hear, and we write about what we know, and we also write about what gets us clicks. If someone writes a blog post about the 25 different Facebook ad tips and tricks that we want to see and it gets a lot of traffic, we're going to write more and more about that. So we looked at all these articles on growth, and these are articles specifically about growing your business, and we found that most of them are on acquisition. About eight out of 10 blog posts out there right now are being written on acquisition, blog posts on growth. It's about one out of 10 being written about retention, and then there's just like a couple dozen, most of them sadly being written by Price Intelligently about monetization. Now what's interesting about this even further is that when we unpack this data, we were like, all right, maybe it's just a nature of how many SaaS companies out there are being built for acquisition. And all of a sudden we found, holy cow. These are all the companies that are being built for acquiring more customers. Not a lot of folks focusing on retention. And I welcome anyone who wants to come and help with monetization. Now this might be a little bit of a chicken or the egg, and what's kind of funny is I wanted to kind of like show you logos, like here's all the acquisition companies, here's all the retention. Those are all the acquisition companies. <laughs> and what's interesting, this might be a little bit of a chicken or the egg problem, right? Like we have a lot of acquisition companies, therefore we have a lot of acquisition blog posts. So we went to the source. We asked you guys, what do you want to focus on? And the first thing we did is we said, if you had one thing to focus on, acquisition, retention, monetization, what would you focus on? Give me more logos. Give me more customers. I do not care how long they stick around. I don't care how much money I make off of them. Now what's interesting is we thought, maybe we're being unfair. We're forcing them to make one decision. Everyone wants to grow quickly. So let's give them 100 units of time, or 100 units of dollars. Nope. Give me more customers. That's all I want, acquisition. But what's scary about this is that what we found is that acquisition isn't the biggest driver of growth. So we built this model um, based on a ton of the data that we're sitting on, and we unpack it in a couple blog posts if you're really interested in the fun, nitty-gritty data science. 
But we basically looked at if we improve each of these different levers by the same relative amount, what's gonna be the impact on your bottom line? So if we improve your acquisition by 1%, let's say, if we improve your lead volume by 1% or we improve your conversion rate by 1%, what's the expected outcome? Well, in the aggregate, you're gonna see about a 3% boost in your bottom line. It's not bad, right? We've spent all this time acquiring customers. We wanna see some sort of an, uh, an outcome. Now, if we improve your retention by 1%, meaning we improve your overall kind of gross churn rate, let's say, you're gonna see a boost in your bottom line of just under 7%. Now, if you improve your monetization by 1%, let's say your ARPU, you're gonna improve your bottom line by just under 13%. So this is what we, oh, so the point is not to look at the individual numbers, but the point really is is that improving retention and monetization has two to four X the impact of improving your acquisition. But this is what we care about. This is what works. So this is a blend. This is a blend right now. Question was, if, is there any data about venture back versus not? Um, this is a blend right now, but it's actually a pretty good 50-50 blend um, in this data set at least, because we wanted to see that as a lurking variable, and we found that it wasn't, wasn't a huge lurking variable on that. Churn, venture-backed companies, it's a huge lurking variable. Um, we have that data set that I can share afterwards. Good question. So this should be a little scary, right? Like, and, and I know I said it was gonna make everyone kind of feel bad, including ourselves, because we're not talking to enough customers, we're not doing enough of this stuff either. But the reason that this should be so scary from kind of a high level in your business is that everything that you're doing, particularly in a SaaS business, from your acquisition team, your sales, your marketing, all the way to your product and engineering, is used to either drive someone to this point of conversion or to justify the price that you're putting on the page. Your price is literally the exchange rate on the value that you've created. And if you have no data on it, if you're not collecting any data about your customers, then you're not gonna know who to drive to this particular page, and you're definitely not gonna know how to price that particular page. So it's a pretty big problem. So how do we fix this? How do we get a little more practical about this? And I promised that it was gonna make everyone feel really good, and we're gonna get some good tactics, some good strategies um, to kind of pull us out of this, this trend that we're seeing. So the big th couple of things that we look at, one is quantifying your buyer personas. Um, so we're gonna go through that process, and we're gonna show you exactly how to do that. Um, it's a little bit more of a process than I can teach in the last 20 minutes here, but it's definitely something that, um, that you're gonna pull away at least the big pieces. And then quite simply, and I know this is quite novel, but it's kind of putting together a customer development process. I mean, it's one of those things where a lot of us, we get so caught up in different things that we just don't have the process in place. Let's talk about quantifying your buyer personas. And basically what I wanna do is I wanna get you to a point where you can comfortably walk away and basically create the basic scaffolding of what your buyer persona should look like. And we're gonna walk through a little bit of an example um, because we wanna make sure that we know the buyer that we're gonna build for and we know the buyer that we're gonna actually sell for. So the example we're gonna use is actually we're gonna talk about ProfitWell. Um, so I mentioned it before, um, we're in a very similar situation of Laura and Edgar. Um, we're basically, we, we started off as a heavy technical service where you know, you, we sold software, but you had to buy us with the software with Price Intelligently. And we wanted to start to scale out. So the first thing that we looked at was ProfitWell, and it's kind of a funny origin story. We were working with a company that was about to IPO um, on their pricing, 
And we were in the room and we realized, it took us to realize, that they were calculating MRR completely incorrectly. Um, and it seems like it's a simple thing, and this was a CFO who had taken two other software companies public. Um, but we were sitting there and we we're like, is this seriously wrong, right? Because um, it's something that they should have really, really well done. Um, and it was wrong, and we were like, holy cow, if this company that's about to go public is getting this wrong, maybe everyone's getting it wrong. Um, even further, when we started to explore, a lot of people weren't tracking their financial metrics. And so we were like, great, this is a huge idea that we have. And we got really, really excited, um, and we looked at a couple of our mentors, um, both David Cancel and Heaton Shaw, and we were like, how should we build this? How should we focus on this? And they were like, build slow. Like, go out there, make 10 people really, really, really happy. So all we did is we focused on those first 10 people. Um, and it did not look this good. It looked awful. Um, it was not great. Um, but it was one of those things where we just focused on making them happy. Um, and what's kind of fascinating about this is that when we launched this, um, this was about two years ago, we put this out there. We all of a sudden made these 10 people happy. And then we decided to go out to the market. And we decided to go, OK, we're going to launch this. We're going to get out there. And this is just going to take off. Like, Let's go subscribe to Yacht Magazine. This is going to be amazing. Um, it's going to be fucking phenomenal. It's going to be great. Um, and as soon as I sent the outbound emails, I get this. Oh, you're kind of like what Barometrics just launched, literally the same week. Oh, you're kind of like what Chart Mogul's working on. They had just raised money like the week before. And we were like, damn it, cancel the Ferraris. Like, it's done. Um, and what was really disheartening about this is that, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Verimetrics, is like they got the hacker news crowd like that. Like they launched, they did you know, a lot of transparency posts. There was a really, really good network there. And it was like, oh, like it was like very like downtrodden. Because enterprise customers, they don't like scream at to the rooftops. They're not like really, they get excited, but they're not as like vocal. And so we had all these vocal tweets about Verimetrics, and then we started seeing some vocal tweets about Chartmogul. And we were like, crap, what do we do? Well, what we did is we went back to the buyer personas. And we did a little bit of research first, and we realized there's 37 other competitors in this market to date. There weren't 37 at that point. Um, but building on Stripe is super simple. Um, and we've now since gone beyond Stripe, but it's one of those things where there's just a lot of folks out there. And we were like, all right, well, we know that we're better in some ways. We just, you know, either hubris or just ethos or whatever we had, we were like, we feel we're better in some ways. We don't have as wide of a product. But what we did is we stopped everything, literally stopped everything, and we went to these buyer personas. Because we hadn't done this work yet. We had just done kind of the conversational customer development. So we go to these buyer personas, and we're like, all right, what do these people care about? And we use some of the tactics that we're going to walk through right here. So the first thing that we did is we went to the customer. And this is a big thing. And I know it's novel. I know you guys are all like pros at this. But you're not talking to enough customers no matter what you're doing. And for the love of God, talk to your customers. Please, I'm pleading with you. Um, we see inside so many different software companies, and the ones that fail are the ones who have no context on what their customers are doing. Um, it's quite literally the biggest thing that we can see in success or failure of companies. Um, so how do we do this? Well, the process at a high level, it's not rocket science. First thing that we're going to do is we're going to start with that shell of buyer personas. Because again, you guys have a basic concept of who your buyers are. It's not like you're completely starting from scratch. But even if you're starting from scratch, you still have some basic, basic things that you can use. We're going to set up an experimental design. We're going to collect some data in a very targeted way, and we're going to go through that in a sec. And then finally, we're going to consolidate, analyze that data, and just do this thing over and over again. 
So what we do, or the first things that we want to look at are really these features. Like what is most valued and what is least valued? And in our situation, we had a hypothesis that we knew making this accurate was really, really important, or that was our hypothesis, but we also knew that it was really, really hard to get right. And so what we did is we went to our experimental design and we decided what kind of data did we need? We needed basic demographic data. We're not talking about like gender, height, those types of things. We're talking more about how many people are on your team? Who's, what other tools are you using? Um, you know, what metrics do you want to look at right now? We went to feature packaging information. That's actually like, do you care about X or do you care about Y? And we're gonna talk about that in a second. And then ironically, like, or, you know, pricing information is actually the easiest to collect. Seems more daunting, but it's actually much, much easier to collect. So how do we ask these questions? The two tools that we're gonna walk through, one is the relative preference analysis, and one is the price sensitivity analysis. And you can use these two tools for a plethora of questions. Any questions related to value, you can use one of these two tools to figure out. So the first one we're gonna look at is this relative preference analysis. And it's really getting to the core of, do people care about X, Y, Z, A, B, or C? And the way that we do that is we don't ask questions like this. The one other thing, if you take away anything else from this presentation, is never ask a question like this ever again. Um, we go back to bad surveys, right? People hate surveys because we're really bad at creating them and sending them. Um, and this particular problem here is I don't really know what's important. You send a survey like this to a salesperson or a marketing person, this is the result you're gonna get. And I know it's a gross generalization, but like, it's pretty true. We've sent about 20 million of these at this point, um, and we just kind of learned what different, uh, different types of buyers are really looking for. So the simple task that you're gonna change here is instead of asking a question like this, you're simply gonna ask something like this. So this is a open source, this is an academic product that you can use, it's called MaxDiff. Um, it's kind of like diet conjoint analysis. Um, but what's really powerful about this is you're forcing the respondent to make a decision. So now it's not, eh, I don't know, like they all gave me nines or eights or sevens or whatever it is, but now it's like, what is the most important thing out of this list? What is the least important? And then the basic math, it's fairly basic, and can share it with you afterwards, or it's in the slide resources that um, if you wanna download, gets you results that look like this. So all of a sudden, I know that this feature is definitely more important than this feature, and I also know magnitude, which is extremely important. Magnitude is important because you might have five features that no one really cares about, or you might have one feature that they really, really don't like, and then four features, let's say, that people kind of care about. So you're doing most and least here. So at the end of the day, and this is why when we segment this, you start to see who cares about what. So that's a really important distinction. This isn't, hey, we don't have to have good uptime. Or this isn't, we can't, we don't have to build that feature. But I do know that for this particular subset, whoever's in this aggregate, that's not gonna be the number one thing on my marketing site. That's also might be, that might be something that I don't really put dev resources on. Like we can have 95% you know, uptime and that's okay. Um, and that's an important distinction here because in dev mindsets and even in marketing mindsets, depending on you know, who you meet, sometimes there's this notion that we need to do everything. Or sometimes there's this notion that oh, well, everything needs to be good, or it's okay if nothing's good, like as long as it's out there, right? And this is where we can actually break down what's important, what's not important, and we break it down on kind of a segment-by-segment -segment basis, 
all of a sudden we do find that uptime, these big dogs, these enterprise companies, they do care about it. These are more mid-enterprise companies than anything. And these mid-enterprise companies, they care about accuracy, actionability, uptime. These small folks, these small early stage startups, they don't really care as much about accuracy. It's all about price to them. And we've heard that many, many times. And a beautiful design. So if it's beautifully designed and it's cheap, which whatever that means, you got them. You got that crowd, right? But all of a sudden, we looked at this, and to kind of bring it to, to kind of the, the case study here, is what we found was like, oh, this is interesting. We were really like getting ourselves down about our design. We were getting ourselves down maybe about the depth or the breadth. But right now, we found that these people, if it's not accurate, and if it's not actionable, and if it's down, like they, they don't care. And when you break this down on a persona by persona basis, and there's some assumptions on like who a persona is or what a persona is, all of a sudden we were like, all right, well, it's got to be accurate. It's got to be actionable. And it's got to stay up. We'll worry about price later, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it's one of those things where all of a sudden we're like, well, we don't want the Hacker News crowd. Like, we want them. Like, it would be great if they could use the product. But it's one of those things where we're not going to build. We're going to say no to them right now, and we're going to focus on that mid-price person. Yeah, so it's tough, right? Because it's, it's, it's qualitative until it's quantitative. Like, that's, that's a way to kind of put it. Um, so there's a couple of ways that you can measure statistical significance with this type of data. And statistical significance, it's not a set number. I would say that if, you, if you're in a very kind of more saturated space with a very saturated type of customer, you can get by, and it's not going to be that, act, like, it's not going to be perfect with it, as little as 50 clean responses per segment. Um, but for us, we were just working on a very qualitative basis here. Um, for at least this data. So we were looking at, like, we just want to get like 30 to 40 per segment. Um, and some of these, we even input the data ourselves based on a conversation. Um, but if you want to do this at scale, you really need to get to, I, again, it's, it's not a set number, but I would say if I had to give a set number, at least 100 responses per segment. Um, and if you're an enterprise company, what's really interesting is you can still use the methodology. Um, it's a great sales tactic where it's like, well, hey, we just talked about four things. What's the most important to you? What's the least important? And it's at least giving you some directional information. It's a great question. So what we do, or what you can do, we didn't do this fully in the beginning, is you can actually use this methodology across most of your features, if not all of them. So what we recommend doing is you might have a main category. So the main category, it's like a parent category, where we're going to compare support, integrations, metrics, data out integrations, and we'll call them action tools. But then you also have subcategorical questions, where it's like, under support, or if you chose support, what's the most important in support? What's least important? And the reason that this is important is because you don't want to send out one question that's like, oh my god, support's so important. Let's give everyone a dedicated account manager, when in reality, like live chat would have been fine. Um, so what we recommend doing is like starting small, if you've never used some of these methodologies. And yes, just ask one question but always know what the data is in context, right? If you don't have a statistically significant sample size, then it's qualitative and at worst, um, or at best, directional data. Um, if you do have one, then maybe you need to dig a little bit further under you know, some of the assumptions that you're seeing from the output. And then the other thing here is making sure that you break this down amongst your demographics and personas. That's super important because every single survey you send, and we, don't have, we all don't have a researcher on our team, 
It's one of those things where you might only be able to ask one question per quarter, making sure that you're putting that into that persona doc so you have it all centralized, so you don't come back 18 months later and figure out, oh wait, we've already asked this question, and yeah, the data might be old, but at least it's a starting point for that future question. Now with this, all of a sudden we figured out, at least on a higher level, what startup Steve cared about, what Mitterprise Marty cared about. And what we were focusing on was, okay, all of a sudden we knew if we were gonna continue working on this product, we were gonna have to focus on accuracy until it was done, and we needed to make sure that it was accurate at all times. And that was something that, you know, to kind of skip to the end, we continued to do, and um, it definitely has paid off in terms of, you know, seeing the data and the output. Now on the other side of the coin, pricing. So we were like, all right, we know it needs to be accurate. We know it needs to be actionable, and that's actionable is something that is gonna take a long time, but we knew it was a guiding light in terms of the product. But in terms of pricing, we wanted to look at how much people were willing to pay. And what's really fascinating about willingness to pay is that it's actually not that hard. You just have to ask. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, we have to ask. That's such a bad conversation to have. You just have to ask in the right way. And human beings, we think about value. Economists and psychologists have studied this. You know, people way smarter than me have figured this out. Is that value is a spectrum, right? I know that, for instance, that this podium is worth less than this entire building. It's not a hard concept to get. But we can take advantage of that relative spectrum of value by asking questions about pricing in a very, very targeted way. And the reason that this is so important is because, remember, we have these different axes that we're looking at. So features, those are tough to figure out. But price, we can go to these different personas and make sure that we're aligning a persona to each of these different tiers. And the questions that we're gonna ask, this is based off of an academic model called Van Westendorp. Um, I can send the resources. Um, but the basic concept is, is we go out and we ask, at what point is this way too expensive? All the way down to, and probably most importantly for a lot of our businesses, at what point is this too cheap that you question the quality of it? Now what's really cool about this is it gives you output that looks like this. So each of those questions, and this is, you can do this in Excel, don't be scared, it's graphs, don't worry. Um, each of those questions corresponds to one of these lines. So at what point is this way too expensive? At what point is this getting expensive? A good deal and too cheap. And a translation of that data is this elasticity curve, which is comparing price point to percent of sales lost. So now all of a sudden, if I collected this data on any one of your products for one particular persona, or let's just say an aggregate, I would know, well, if I move my price to $500 from $400, let's say, I'm gonna lose this chunk of people. And you could do a basic calculation on like, maybe it's worth it. Or you might find, holy cow, we're priced down here. That's why we're losing all these sales, because we're not appropriately priced and people think we're too cheap. I have plenty of anecdotes of people who have doubled their price and not only doubled ARPU, um, but also basically doubled their conversion rate because people took them more seriously. Um, and that's probably a bigger problem than most people overpricing, um, although there's plenty of, plenty of problems there as well. But what we found here for us was some dismal news. We looked at the willingness to pay for a SaaS metric solution amongst these personas. And down here, Hacker News Crowd, not much. These are the annoying customers, right? Like, I want everything and it needs to be free. Um, but what was scarier was not that because we've all heard anecdotes about that. The bigger problem was up here. So if you look down here, you know, 50 to 100 bucks a month, okay, we get it, um, startups, et cetera. 
But this price didn't scale effectively. All of a sudden, we were looking at, we were expecting, you know, if you want to, if you have, if you're in a good market, the scale, particularly for a B2B market, you should be looking at, you know, much more than 5x, essentially, from bottom to top. Sorry? Willingness to pay. Good question. And so what you're looking at here is really you're looking at a 5x. It's not great, right? That means that an established company, like a semi-established growing company, is not really willing to pay much for your product relative to a very, very small company. And the other context on this is I don't know if anyone's tried to build an analytics product, but retention is the worst. Um, if you've heard anything from Mixpanel, like their retention curves, like they bottom out near 20, 30%, or at least that was the rumor at least a year ago. Um, that's awful. That means like within six months, you're basically losing 80 um, of, of every 100 customers that you're bringing in. And so we were like, all right, well, we're not gonna make a lot of money off of them, and they're gonna leave us. Like this is a horrible disaster of a problem. Um, and we were like, all right, maybe we just stop building. So what we did though, is we had some other hypotheses about different products. Um, because at this point, we were starting to see different, different data points. We we're starting to realize different pain points with these customers. Um, but before we get there, what we did is we then plugged this in, and the really hard conversation we had is when we estimated CAC and LTV. So anyone who knows about, and CAC is customer acquisition costs, LTV is lifetime value. Um, basically, you want an LTV to CAC ratio of three or more, meaning for every dollar you put into your business, you get three or more dollars out. Um, our LTV to CAC was underwater. <laughs> um, so we were losing money, potentially, on people. And then for the startup world, it was kind of like one, basically. And so we're like, all right, we don't have a business. Like, there's no business here. Like, what do we do? Um, so we did have some inklings. The first one was on churn recovery. Churn is a problem for everyone. So we asked some people, we were like, listen, like, what if we hypothetically built this product? And we introduced the product to them. We had some screenshots, things like that. And we found, holy cow, things scaled pretty well. If we could say, we just basically lowered your churn by this amount, What's your willingness to pay? And what we found was, is all of a sudden, and it's hard to see here, but the median here is actually around $100, $150. A company that wasn't willing to, willing to pay 50 bucks was willing to pay 150 bucks if we reduced their churn. And then some of these big dogs got into some really, really serious MRR. We're looking at four-figure MRR, which is pretty impressive, right? And then all of a sudden, you're like, all right, revenue recognition. This was another problem we heard a lot from these mid-enterprise Marty folks. And the willingness to pay, again, the small folks didn't care because they don't do accrual accounting typically. The larger folks, holy cow, this is a big problem. And there's a bunch of different qualitative data that we also got. But what we realized through this exercise, and again, this was before we continued on because we had that point of, oh, crap, we're done, is we found that we had a solution here if we wanted to pursue it. And so what we did is we basically made profitable free. So you can go in, you can plug in your billing system, you get all these metrics for free. It's accurate, it's actionable, um, it's now well-designed. Um, it definitely wasn't um, before, um, but it's one of those things for us, at least why we did this. It's got a low CAC and we're providing constant value. So we knew that we were gonna fight a retention war and we still fight a little retention war around active usage, but it's one of those things where I don't have to get you to pay me a dollar to get you in the door. It's something where it's relatively easy, we can get you through, and all of a sudden we're providing constant value so that maybe you won't buy from me the next month, but maybe six months, 12 months down the road, I own you as a lead potentially. In addition to that, we have a path to share of wallet. I can show you you have a problem with churn and I can give you a product that you can instantly turn on and all of a sudden we give you a solution to churn. And then finally, it creates the requirement 
which is kind of a similar concept, but basically we can go in and we can say, we're partners in your business and we can help you. You know, here are the things that you should be doing or here are the things that you need to be doing and basically be a coach to a lot of these different users. And for monetization, right now, we're looking at Retain, which is the um, churn product and revenue recognition, which basically solves you know, a ton of work that people have on their finance team. And what's really kind of fascinating about this is that the underlying data point that was always in the back of our mind that I didn't really share yet is that right now there are only about 15,000 SaaS companies in the world right now. Um, that seems like a disastrously low number, and it is. If you add subscription businesses, so like media companies, things like that, all of a sudden you get to maybe 50,000. Um, and we've done a lot of work on trying to estimate this market. And even if we're wrong, like by a factor of two or three X, um, we're still not talking about a million different businesses that we can access. And so that was a big contributing factor into making ProfitWell free was because we know we need really high share of wallet. And so for the smaller folks, we'll get them through the door, we'll figure out how we can you know, get them to grow, and if we get them to grow, then they might want to use our tools. Um, and then for the larger folks, we're gonna basically create the requirement for them already out of the gate. So what's amazing about this is all that work that I just showed you took 12 hours, and it cost us $2,100. And I'm putting this up here, and technically we do this for a living, so like, let's assume it might take 24 hours for you in aggregate, but this doesn't take a ton of time to do. It's something that you have to be doing in your business, is collecting this type of data, or at least having these conversations with your customers. The big thing here, though, is that this is a process. This isn't a one or done type thing. Um, you really need to be collecting some sort of data, what we recommend on a quarterly basis, and that's because you really should be evaluating or making changes to your prices every three to six months. Now, I'm not talking about the actual number on the page, but it might be, hey, we're putting this feature here, we're pulling this feature out as an add-on, maybe you are lowering your value metric, the unit of value that you charge on. You're doing something to change up your prices. Because it is that important, you need to treat it similar to your product development cycle. And one big thing we always say is, if you're improving your product, you should be improving your price. Because remember, price is the exchange rate on that value that you're creating. So to do that, what we recommend doing is just following a pretty straightforward kind of process here, where someone, this is dedicated maybe 20% of their time, doesn't have to be 100% of their time, um, but they're kind of the main point of contact, the main liaison internally for pricing. You have a meeting at the first week here, maybe it's your pricing committee, which we'll talk about in a second. Over the course of those four weeks, that person, he or she goes out and basically focuses on, hey, like this is our problem, we need to figure out how we need to spur more annuals, or hey, we need to figure out where this feature should go, if we should do it as an add-on or should include it. Then that person comes back in week four, basically says, here's what we found, let's make a decision. You make a decision, depending on the impact of that decision, you might need to create a communication plan, or if it's really, really major, you might need to go back out to your customers and just like verify that this is the right decision to be made. And then you implement. And then the next quarter, it's another problem. And typically, the folks that should be involved, really, depending on your size, if you're really, really early on, um, normally it's just the couple of founders that are in the room. Um, for the other folks who are a little bit larger, you do want some representation from product, sales, marketing, um, and corp dev or finance. We typically recommend that the main point of contact should not be in finance and should not be in sales. Um, I'm gonna make some gross generalizations, but typically sales folks like, always want lower prices. Um, and then finance folks, they like to really work in their spreadsheet. 
um, you know, if we just do this, all of a sudden growth will be amazing. And it's like, well, we need to talk to the customers. <laughs> so, um, and then normally the main decision maker, they don't necessarily need to be involved in the committee, um, but there needs to be some sort of decision maker. Pricing, a lot of us aren't used to doing this on a regular basis, and so there needs to be someone and a date on the calendar that says, we're gonna make a decision by this date and by this person, um, because you might get analysis paralysis and just not focus on it. But the big thing here today, this kind of stuff matters. Your customers matter, monetization matters. It's something that you have to focus on in your business, um, mainly because it's getting harder, and you don't wanna make it harder on yourself. So with that, thanks guys. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.